just thank you for this day. We thank you for the opportunity we have to study your word and thank you for your word that you've given us so we can know you in a, in a strong way. And we just thank you and ask you to guide and lead in your son's name. Amen. All right, we're going to continue in Mark chapter 20, how about Matthew chapter 22, especially since there isn't a Mark chapter 22 in the, in the book. We'd be looking all day for that one. <laughs> if we found a Mark 22, we're in the wrong Bible. Uh, Matthew chapter 22, and we've been watching the Jesus uh, being attacked. The, the, we, last week we looked at the Herodians coming at him with, should we pay taxes? And the Herodians were one that believed that Rome was, you know, support Rome, and Rome was a good protection for us. And this week we're going to start with looking at the Sadducees in verse 23. The same day came to him the Sadducees, which say there is no resurrection, and asked him, saying, Master, Moses said, if a man die, leaving no children, and his brother shall marry his wife, and shall raise up seed unto his brother. Now there were with us seven brothers, and the first when he would, had married a wife deceased, and having no issue, left his wife unto his brother, likewise the second also, and the third, and on, and on to the seventh. And the last of all, the woman died also. Therefore, in the resurrection, whose wife shall she be of the seven? For they all had her. And Jesus answered and said unto them, You do err, not knowing the scriptures, nor the power of God. For, there, for in the resurrection they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are as the angels of God in heaven. But as touching the resurrection of the dead, have you not read that which was spoken unto you by God, saying, I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob? God is not the God of the dead, but of the living. And when the multitude heard this, they were astonished at his doctrine. All right, so we look at this, and it says, the very same day that the Herodians came to him, the Sadducees came to him, and the Sadducees are in an upper echelon group. They, they were fairly wealthy. They were uh, high-end. They had money. They, and they were secularists. Okay? They did not believe in the resurrection, which is talked about here. And they also did not believe in miracles. They did not believe in God. They really didn't even believe in an afterlife. It was just today is what you've got, <laughs> and that's it. Much like the Jews of today are, for the most part, most of them would fit into the Sadducees' belief pattern. And if there's a God, there's a God, but this doesn't really play into anything for the future. And this was who they were. They, they tended to side a little bit more with Rome. They were pragmatists. Okay, Rome, they, and their idea was Rome is in charge. We're going to accept them. But if tomorrow Rome was to leave and we were in charge, we'd accept that. Uh, so they were really just taken day by day. And they come to Jesus, and their question is going to be regarding the resurrection. And it's kind of interesting. The Herodians asked him about taxes when they were all for paying taxes. And now the Sadducees are going to come talk to him about a resurrection that they don't believe in. Now, have you ever, it's kind of funny when you talk to somebody who is, doesn't believe in God, doesn't believe in, in, in the Bible, and yet they'll come at you with some kind of Bible or God-related question trying to trip you up. Uh, and they don't understand They don't understand the Bible anyway. And it's kind of fun to deal with them sometimes because you can do just what Jesus do and twist them, twist them all around because they don't know what they're talking about. The thing is, they think they do. And you know, you'll, you'll, you'll hear this when people will say, well, how do you deal with all the contradictions in the Bible? 
And I've told you the, the, the first answer, anytime somebody throws that to you, is name one contradiction in the Bible. Give me one and then we can deal. And usually though, well, there's lots of them. No, I go, give me one so we can work through your, your supposed contradiction. And the problem is they don't know the Bible well enough to even know that there aren't any contradictions. All they've had is some smart person tell them there's lots of contradictions in the Bible. And they will never talk to somebody who can answer anything that, that is a supposed contradiction. Now, there are hard things in the Bible. We all know that. If you've read the Bible, studied the Bible, you know there's some hard things in the Bible. Uh, I have a book in my library, How to Answer the Hard Questions of the Bible. Uh, now, I've read most of them, and I already know, the, know, the, know these answers, but somebody gave it to me as a gift, so it sits it's in my library. But you know, these are some of the interesting things. When, when the lost world comes at us and tries to go after us about the Bible, uh, and you'll you hear some really strange things. You know, they'll tell you things that, are, that you, you're, are in the Bible that you know aren't there, and you go, well, where is that? I don't know. I, you know, you know, I don't know. It's in there. <laughs> Nowhere that I've ever seen. And so here the Sadducees are coming, and if you ever, you know, one of the little mimetic uh, devices, are, the Sadducees don't believe in the resurrection, so they're sad you see. <laughs> oh. <laughs> uh, so you'll never forget who the Sadducees are if you just remember that little, you know, they're, they're sad because they don't have any hope in the future. <laughs> So, but they come to him and says, Master, if a man die, Moses said, if a man die having no children, his brothers shall marry his wife and raise up a seed for him. This was a true statement. They actually did have this in, in, in the scriptures. It's in Deuteronomy 25, 5 and 6 was the repeat on it. And basically, this has been going on for even longer than Moses because if you remember all the way back to Judah and and Tamar, uh, Judah and Tamar is David's daughter. Anyway, uh, one of Judah's sons married this woman and, and didn't have uh, a, any children. She, he died. He gave her, to a, gave her to a second son who died, and he refused to give her to the third son because at this time he's thinking she's the reason for their deaths. And uh, she ends up going out and pretending to be a prostitute judah lays with her has a has a child with her wants to wants to stone her and then she you know she goes well you can stone you know you can stone me but first tell me whose staff and ring this is and sends him his stuff back to him and so he ends up marrying her uh, but never again <laughs> having any relationship with her but treats her as treats her as a wife so this has been this rules goes on long before moses The second wife. And, and the whole purpose of this was that they were to raise up a child in the name of the uh, brother. This is the story of Ruth. When Ruth and Naomi come back to town, and it's near kinsmen, Naomi's old enough, she's not going to have another child, even though the line will be wiped out in her case. But her daughter-in-law is young enough to have a have a son to maintain the line, and Boaz falls in love with her and has a child. And if you read the very end of Ruth, it says, and the child was given to Naomi. And literally, it means it was given to Naomi. It was considered, that first child was considered hers because it was to be raised up to replace her sons. 
and that's how this would work. Your, your first child out of that. Now, if you love the person, then the first child belonged to your brother or whoever you were <laughs> replacing, and then any other children would be yours. So, and that's again, if you go to the story of Ruth, the first first person in line goes, "No, I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna do this because it'll cost me. You know, part of my inheritance will go to this this child that I don't want to have anything to do with." <laughs> and so. This is what they're referring to, the, the kinsman redeemer laws that, that are out there. So they, they understand that there's a law. And so, and then the, they set up this really crazy scenario. You know, seven brothers, <laughs> and all seven of them die. That would be one unlucky woman. <laughs> yeah, something, she better do something a little bit different. Uh, you know, some, uh, by the time you got to the seventh brother, he probably was in terror, but he'd be in terror by the time he went into that relationship. Uh, you know, uh, is this woman killing us? We don't, we don't give her a baby within, within a month, you know, you know, and she's killing us? You know, who knows what the logic was on this? You know? uh, but they're setting up a very ludicrous story. And, uh, and then they ask, you know, in verse 28, uh, after they say, you know, they've gone through all seven brothers, Therefore, in the resurrection, whose wife shall she be of the seven? For they all had her. And you know, this question is just such a bizarre question from coming from the Sadducees. Now, in the resurrection, which we don't really believe in Jesus, but because, because the Bible talks about it, you know, we're going to ask you about this. And this is something that we want to be careful of. So many times... The world will come at us. The, sometimes even Christians will come at us with, you know, that are trying to justify their, what they're doing or not doing. And they'll give you some really bizarre story, very bizarre setup. And then they'll give you some Bible verse, oftentimes taken out of context. And you know, when you're witnessing, you hear it a lot. What about the, the people in the middle of Africa that have never heard Jesus' name? How are they going to be a Christian? Or how are they going to go to heaven? I go, well, it's not my problem. That's God's problem. God just tells us that everyone will have an opportunity to have heard. And, you know, we'll get these, and most of them are just smoke screens. You know, if I ask you a really hard question and you don't know the answer, then, then I don't have to listen to anything else you say. And usually the best thing to do on those really hard questions is just simply say, well, I don't know the answer. Let me find out about it. Or do you really want to know? Sometimes I've asked that question to people. Do you really want to know the answer to what you just asked? Well, not really. You know, because I can tell you. It might take me a couple hours, but I can tell you. <laughs> well, no, I don't, want to, I don't want to know that bad. <laughs> and, you know, we see this all the time. People throwing out just smoke screens. And it's natural defense. You know, if I get you, you know, twisted around enough, maybe you'll stop telling me what I don't want to hear in the first place. And here they are with Jesus saying, you know, hey, yeah, we, we've given you this really hard question. You know, husband and wives are supposed to stay together in the, in, the, in the resurrection according to their doctrine. Now, nowhere in the Bible does it say that. And we're going to find out that Jesus doesn't agree with them. And this section on, on what Jesus gives us is, gives us a lot about the information about the resurrection. And it's kind of interesting to look at. So verse 29, he starts out with, you do err not knowing the scriptures, nor the power of God. So very all, right off the bat, he's going, okay, you're religious leaders, but you don't even know the Bible. And he says this quite frequently to the religious leaders. You 
are in error, you don't know what you're talking about. And it's kind of funny sometimes, and it's sad on another side, sometimes because I listen to so many different pastors and everything all over the place, sometimes I hear pastors that probably shouldn't be pastors because they don't know the Bible. You know, you listen to them and going, where in the world do you come up with this information? And, you know, sometimes it's through history books or commentators or who knows what. But when it's their opinion, they're not even prefacing it with, I think, or this is what I believe. They're just teaching it straight out like it's straight out of the Bible. And it's one thing to be able to say, this is what I believe. I do that frequently. This is what I believe about this. And it's, you know, if you want to disagree with it, be my guest. Uh, here's why I believe it. And I'll lay out the, the arguments for why I believe what I believe. And I've told everybody, there's many places where I'm in the minority opinion on, on a lot of doctrines in the Bible, but I've never believed the uh, things that most people are teaching. And when I, when I teach that, I'll tell you, if you want to believe the other side, you're in good company because most of the people do. But you always reference back to where it came from in the Bible. Mm -hmm. Well, I'll tell you why. I, I will tell you why I believe what I believe. Right. Okay. Now, again, because I know it's usually a minority opinion, I will tell you, that, you know, if you want to believe the other thing, that's fine. You know, if you want to believe Jesus died on a Friday, you'll be in great company because the majority of the Christian teachers out there believe that Jesus died on a Friday. I just don't buy it. And I'll, I've laid out my arguments many times for why he didn't die on a Friday, uh, including the dates of the Passover during that period of time. There's only two of them that could possibly be, you know, a Friday in, the, in a 10-year period. And none of them fall within the dates that Jesus is thought to have died on. So, you know, and you look at that and you go, okay, believe it, you know, now prove to me that your dates are right in the first place. So, but again, am I going to sit there and say, well, if you don't believe what I believe, you're, you know, it's the end of the world? No. <laughs> Especially if you, you know, if you're going to agree some, with something, you know, and Jesus tells these guys, you don't even know it, you don't even know your Bible. Now, when Jesus tells you you don't know your Bible, you better listen. <laughs> You know, if, if some pastor or teacher is telling you you don't know your Bible, you probably should listen if they're, if they're worth listening to. But you take that with a grain of salt. But when Jesus says you don't know what you're talking about, you, you've got a problem. So now he goes in verse 30. For in the resurrection they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are as the angels of God in heaven. All right, so this is kind of an interesting statement. He goes, when, after the resurrection, you, there's no marriage, or you're not given in marriage. And then I just want to really pay attention to this the last little section. But they are as, as the angels of God in heaven. Angels do not procreate as far as any information that we know. All right? And Jesus says they don't procreate. Paul repeats that they don't pro, pro, procreate. Now, having said that, there's the... People who believe that before the flood that the angels had sex with, with women and created half-breed monsters. <laughs> and yet Jesus says they don't have sex. So we read what Jesus says and then listen to what people say about that. And it's like, okay, where are you at? And I've never believed it because the very opening of the Bible says everything reproduces after its own kind. And we know that we are not angels. We will never be angels. 
So these all kind of play in, and this is one thing about, you know, like in our Bible study class, we're saying you compare scripture to scripture. So you look at scripture and say, is what's being taught here valid from other places in scripture? And if it can't be valid, then it's not right. And if it doesn't make sense, then there's still, you still have to look at it to be what's true. And here he says, you know, when we enter into the resurrection, in that aspect, we will be like angels. No procreation after, after we've, after we've uh, left this world. And no given in marriage, as much as we might want to be with our spouse for eternity, we'll probably have a special relationship with them, but we're not in a marriage relationship with them in heaven. And why? If you think about it, it makes a whole lot of sense because when we're in heaven, as Christians, we are then the bride of Christ. And to have a second marriage in that, in that, in that relationship just wouldn't work. Okay? So we have this whole thing of it makes perfect sense to not be <laughs> in that relationship. And I believe, you know, you spent your life with somebody, it's, there's probably a special relationship still in heaven. There's probably a special relationship with your family, but it's not going to be the same type of relationship that we have on this world. You know, they're a little closer, they're family. You know, they're, family is always going to be closer, but at the same token, as a church body, we're all family and should have that close relationship together. And that's what I love about being a Christian. Whenever I used to, and I never did a lot of travel, but whenever I would travel, it was so wonderful. You'd go to church and you were with family. You know, it was just, you were there. It was a family. And if it was a good church, it was just like being at your home church. You know, just, you didn't know everybody as close. And when I would travel, I you know, usually went by myself because of the job would only pay for me. And it would be interesting. I'd go to church on Sunday, and I would end up going to church that night. And in between, I'd be at the pastor's house or somebody's house at the, in the church that would be in, you know, invite you to just have lunch or dinner and everything, much, much like we do here on Sundays you know, with, with my wife and Lynn. We'll invite people to stay and have lunch with us frequently just because it's fun to fellowship, especially if they're visiting gives us a great opportunity to talk to people. And here we see the Jesus saying, you don't even understand what you're, t what you're talking about. You, you don't know the scriptures. And then he goes in verse 31, but as touching the resurrection of the dead, have you not read that which was spoken unto you by God saying, again, he goes, have you not read? Have you not read? This is a very important statement, and I've used this many times with people. Well, the Bible says such and such, and I will ask them where. You know, I am not opposed to asking people questions to defend, you know, to when they start saying, saying things. Where did I get that? How did Jesus answer most things? He would ask them a question. It's a rabbinical way of teaching. You ask questions. You find out where the person's really coming from, and then you can actually deal with the issue <laughs> that is at hand, not, not the question that they're throwing out as a, as a smoke screen. You go, you, you, and Jesus asked oftentimes, if you look at when Jesus speaks, he oftentimes asked questions. Now, who, who do men say that I am to your disciples? Well, some say you're Elijah, some say, you know, you know okay, and then he goes, well, okay, who do you say I, I am? And then he goes into a long message, you know, when Peter says, you, you are the Christ, the Messiah, he goes into a long teaching now. Okay, you, you understand, you understand the basics now, let's go on and go, go deeper. And this is very important, you know, 
knowing where people are when you're trying to teach them is important. And I've shared with you all, one of the craziest experiences I had was when I was in my 30s and they assigned me to teach the senior adult men's class. And I went into that class scared to death the first Sunday. I had studied probably 40 hours for that class. If I wasn't working, I was studying. Because I was just sure that these guys would know so much more than I knew. And, the very, and I said a statement that to me was an elementary statement of, of, of the doctrine. And I was going on to, I was going on to where I was, had studied. <laughs> you know, I, just dropped, I just dropped a simple doc, you know, doctrinal statement and I was ready to go to the, to the more advanced stuff. And one of the guys raised his hand and, can, and he said, can you explain what you just said? And I was like, okay. These guys who have been teachers, deacons, running the church for the last 30 years don't know anything more, no less than I do about the scriptures. This is not any different from any other group. It was shocking, but yet it also revealed to me, find out where people are. You know, don't just assume that they that they're ever been taught. And in their cases, these guys have not really been taught. And we see Jesus doing this a lot. Where are you at? Talk to me. Tell me, tell me where. And this was a rabbinical style of teaching. You know, ask a bunch of questions and then find out where they're at, and then you go, okay, this is where you're at. Okay, we're we're at elementary school, we're in kindergarten, we're we're oh, you guys are ready for university? Okay, let's really go to it. Or you guys are only kindergartners, okay, we'll try to keep it <laughs> we'll try to keep it simple. And here he's saying, You have not read. And he says in verse 32, he says, I am the God of Abraham and God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. God is not the God of the dead, but of the living. Which, what, what was he basically doing? He was chiding them at this point. He goes, you guys don't believe in the resurrection yet. God does. God's not the father of, of, he's, of dead people. And this is where he says, the I am. Okay. When God gives his name to Moses, it's I am. I am that I am. I'm the existing one. You know, God is who he is, and who he is is who he is, and he's always going to be who he is. And he doesn't change. And it says, I am the, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. Not I was, or I will be, but I am their God. And this is 3,000 years after they've passed away. And God says, I am their God. Why? Because they were living in his presence. He is our God, and we are his children. We are his children. When all the individuals who've passed away as his children, he's still the God of them because he's taken them in heaven, and he is their God today because they've been, they're in his presence. Paul said to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. All right? And that means as soon as we step out of this body, we're in God's presence. We just change dimensions to God's dimension. And it's very important for us to understand that because how much comfort, number one, does that give you? As soon as my body expires, I'm in God's presence. And I actually believe that we actually leave our body just moments before the body finally passes away. And there's a lot of evidence from that, you know, circumstantial evidence, but uh, most morticians will know a Christian when they see it because there's usually a smile on their face and their body is not extremely tense. And they say that non-Christians have a, have a look of terror on their face usually. 
And I really truly believe, and I've heard other evangelists say this, that for the, the split second before you die, you get to see while you're still in this body where you're going. And for those that are not Christians, they see hell in that split second before they pass, expire. And so the body actually experiences that split second. And that's a personal belief. I have no biblical grounds for it other than from what I've heard from different, different sources, the terror or not terror on their face. And you look and people will say so often, you know, I see, you know, I see all these good things just before they pass away. And I've never been sat with somebody who's going to hell and I don't think I want to. Because you, but I've heard also the testimonies of people being in total, absolute terror as they're passing away and have rejected Christ. And so he's saying, you know, he's the God of the living, not the God of the dead. <laughs> well, just, just the future, <laughs> anything about the future, because this is the wonderful thing even about Christianity as a whole. I have hope. Why do I have hope? Because I have a living God, a God of the living, who's got heaven in store for me, who is also in control of all things. You know, what do we have to be afraid of, really? You know, if he gives us a little bit of pain, a little bit of sorrow, a little bit of suffering... Number one, we grow through it. We always grow through the pain. God uses pain to help teach lessons. Stronger. It does make us stronger. It makes us more dependent on God. It makes us know that he is God. And that's what he tells us. He makes us strong through the pain and through the trials. But we also know that he has a good plan for us, which gives us the ability to say, okay, God, don't understand this, but you say it's for good, so I'm just going to stay at peace through it. And our hope, our hope is in heaven. You know, nothing in this world is of, of any lasting value. And I've said this before, when, you've been in, when you have been in heaven, which we, don't, we know there's no time, but when we're in heaven for 10 gigabillion, gigabyte million years or whatever, you know, you know gigaplex, Googleplex, that's the number I'm looking for, Googleplex years, uh, which is the biggest number of people can go, it's lots of zeros after it. You know, we won't remember this, this world. <laughs> It won't, it won't even mean anything to us because of all the rewards and the rewards that God gives us last forever. You know, it's going to be an amazing thought. You know, to even picture what heaven's going to be like is a, a tough, tough thing. You know, but to be able to worship God in person, to be able to do whatever it is he's got for us to do, and we know there's going to be work in heaven because that's what we were created for was for work. Now, it just won't be hard work. It won't be sweating to the brow, but it'll be, it'll be work that we'll enjoy. And I don't know if any of you have ever had the privilege of having a job you truly enjoy where it's not work to go to work. It's almost harder to say, okay, I've got I to gotta leave work now. I've had a couple jobs like that. They were just so much fun to be at, and I enjoyed them so much, it was actually hard to go home to not do the work. And that's what heaven will be part of. You know, a job that's so much fun that God's going to have to kind of remind you, okay, it's time to, kind of, time to go do some other things. <laughs> you know, go, go, go visit your family and, and you know, go visit your friends a little bit. You know, but it's going to be an interesting place. And just times and other times when I've gone into worship and you can just feel God's presence so strongly, you go, God, is this just a small taste of heaven? Not, you know, not even the real thing, but just a, a small taste, and if it's this good here, 
what's it going to be like when we get in your presence and actually get to be with you all the time? I just, I, I get goosebumps thinking about those tastes that I've had of what it might be like. And knowing that they're just a shadow, they're not even, they're not even the completion of it and how good the shadows have been. And very important for us to just think about how much, whatever we have here on this earth, God's got more. It's going to be greater. The best thing that you can think of that's happened to you on this world is just a small shadow of what heaven's going to be like. In uh, C.S. Lewis's Narnia, The Last Battle, everything starts breaking down and they keep going further in, further in, and everywhere they go they see everything, that, all the best of what they have, only better. And they're still trying to get to God's shore. <laughs> and they're going, it's better. Everything is better. And it's kind of an interesting way to think about it. Whatever good that you've had is just a sample, a dark, sh- a dark shadow of what heaven will be. And, and um, huh? Good, I want to go. <laughs> <laughs> it should make us want to go. Not, not to the point where we're ready to commit suicide. But I, I, when Paul said that he was looking forward to going to heaven, but he says, it's better for me that I stay with you, I know what he was saying because I want to be in heaven. But as long as I'm able to teach people and help them grow out closer to God and, and, and be saved, I would just as soon be here. Well, I know since I've been saved, I, know, I no longer fear death. Uh-huh. And the Christians shouldn't fear death because it's really stepping into life. When we look, at, look back, we're going to look at this and say, well, that was death back there. Uh, I was, quote, unquote, alive, but I was really dead compared to where I am at now. And this is where we've got to keep remembering. In the Psalms, it says, precious in the sight of God is the death of his saints. And that's a very bizarre thing when you think about it, but he's saying they've come home. Really, that's what he's saying. They've come home. They're where they belong. So if they die in this world... It's great. And I understand the idea of being sad, you've lost family, you've lost somebody you love, and I understand that being the case. But you know, if they're saved, it should not be a grieving situation because they're in heaven and we're going to see them again. Not in the same relationship as before, but we will be seeing them for all of eternity with an unbroken and undiluted love and relationship that we can't have on this world. And so we want to be able to say this is what's going. Now, I say that from an academic point of view because I have lost nobody that's really close to me in my life. I've lost both my grandmothers but, and my grandfathers, but I was never real close to them, so it wasn't a drastic loss. The disadvantage of traveling around all, you know, my entire life is that I never do close to a lot of my family members. Now, I'm hoping that it will be real and true to me even when it's when it does happen. But you know, it's, I think it's going to because I so much trust God's word, but I won't know until I get there. It's just like anything else. You never know how you're going to react until you get through the problem. You can read all the doctrines, you can read all the truths of the Bible, but until you have to walk in that test, you don't know whether you're going to live it or not. It's, same thing when I talk to people, you know, I like to tell you that, you know, when I face death you know, or martyrdom, I would be, all right, time for it. We don't know until we get there. I, I think that I would, but I don't know until I get there. 
and I think it's coming soon. But I've read Fox's Book of Martyrs, and when God says it's time for it, he'll give us the grace for what we need to do, whatever that might be. And so here we are with the, this, uh, this saying. So the Sadducees failed to trick Jesus, and in verse 33 it says, And when the multitude heard this, they were astonished at his doctrine. Okay, why were they astonished? Most of the time they were astonished because Jesus spoke with authority. Most of the time when you talk to the rabbis, they go, Rabbi so-and-so said this, and in the Mishnah it says this, and Rabbi, you know, uh, speaks out loud, <laughs> says this, you know, and, and they never said things that were, or rarely said something where they said, I say this about it. Jesus always was very forceful in saying, this is the way it is. Okay, he did not quote other people. He did not try to lift up other people. He just said, this is the way it is. And so they were kind of astonished all the time. This is a man who is not leaning on other people. And this is why it's important for us as we study God's word to really learn to spend time with the Holy Spirit. Because God knows the meaning of the scriptures. And commentaries are good to a degree. Uh, and commentaries will give you a lot of insight from very smart people who have studied all kinds of cultures and, and been studying the Bible. And if they're a good teacher, you'll get some good, good messages from them at times. But we always have to remember that the commentaries are not scripture. And I've had many people quote something, I'm going, where'd you get that? Well, I read this commentary, I'm going, then, you know, forget the commentary, study, and then go to the commentary and get what the Holy Spirit says. All right, verse 34, we're going to read the next section here. And when the Pharisees had heard that they had put the Sadducees to silence, they were gathered together. Then one of them, which was a lawyer, asked him a question, tempting him and saying, Master, which is the great commandment in, in the law? And Jesus said unto him, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the first and great commandment. And the second is like unto it, You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments hang all the law and the prophets. All right, so Jesus has had the Herodians come to him. He's had the Sadducees come to him. And now he gets to have the Pharisees come to him. The Pharisees are the masters of the law. And most of them are lawyers, even though it kind of said this one was a lawyer. But most of the Pharisees were, were trained up as lawyers. To be a Pharisee, you had to memorize the entire Pentateuch, uh, which is all first five books of, 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 Mo, of the Bible that Moses wrote. And you had to study under a, a particular rabbi that was of reputation. You couldn't just pick the, the local uh, country uh, rabbi and say, okay, I studied under a rabbi in the middle of the country. Uh, John, you know, it's like, no, no, you want to you study on a reputable rabbi. Had to be at least 30 years old, and they had to be married. So there's all kinds of things that, uh, that made it so that they could be a Pharisee. And so they come up, and they've watched Jesus get rid of the Sadducees. They watched Jesus get rid of the Herodians' questions. And so one of them says, you know, in verse 35, one of them asked him a question, tempting him. And the idea was to try to get him trapped in, just like all the rest of them, and Jesus knew. Jesus knew that they were tempting him. 
And uh, he says, which is the great commandment of the law? And this was not a real hard question. Seems how it's told to, the answer is told to us in Deuteronomy, which is where Jesus quotes. Deuteronomy 6.5 is what he quotes. But, you know, basically he's saying, uh, Jesus, there's 613 commandments. Which one's the greatest? And this is supposed to be a big deal. I mean, this is one that they debate, you know, that they would debate amongst themselves, even though the answer was already given. They would still debate. And it's amazing sometimes what, what smart people will debate when the answer is obvious. And it's kind of fun sometimes when you know the answer and you're listening to these guys go around in circles and up and down and usually the wrong direction. Uh, when you listen to somebody trying to talk about evolution and they run around in circles and they, and they contradict themselves and they make all these crazy statements on there and you're going, well, God created the heavens and the earth. It's real simple. It fits all the science. And they go, well, no, yeah, yeah. They, you know, they don't want to ever go to the simple. And I don't know how many of you have ever dealt with these guys that are supposed to be smart, but they can never accept the smart, they can never accept the simple answer. Because the simple answer is what everybody can understand. Now, if you're a mechanic, sometimes you get this guy who's been in a mechanic and gone to all the classes, and, and they'll give you all the reasons why it can't be what it is that you think it is, so you fix what you think it is, and it works. And they go, well, I don't know how that worked. Well, uh, you know, first rule of any mechanical, uh, mechanical engine has got to have fuel, oxygen, and uh, spark. You know, if you don't have any one of those three, it, it's not going to work. And yet, they'll run around trying to find all the other answers instead of looking at simple. And this is something that happens a lot. A lot of times people get so wrapped up in trying to find the most complex answer they can possibly find. And then usually, if they're worth anything, they'll end up down at the simple answer and go, wow, I went, a, I went for three months trying to figure out the right answer and it was right there. I could have solved it <laughs> the first day if I just thought simple. And we want to keep this in mind. And this is one of the things when we study the scriptures. Most of the time, it's pretty simple. God wants everybody to understand what he says. Jesus invited them, bring the children unto me so that he could teach them. And we want to keep this in mind that God is there to keep things simple. And almost always the easiest and best answer is the simple answer. <laughs> you know, let me just let's simplify this. And I've even said this in sometimes in meetings when people are way off doing things and going, hold it, let's come back to the beginning. You guys are, you know, 10 years down the road here, you know, we've got a problem today. Let's, let's look at the problem that we have, not all the other aspects of it. And usually people will treat symptoms and not the problem. So a lot of times in managers, they have a food cost problem. So what do they do? Instead of solving the waste or the theft, they decide to put less food on the, product, on the plate. Okay, solves your problem until your customers say, I'm not going to eat enough product, and they stop coming. So now you have a bigger problem. You're losing sales. <laughs> so instead of fixing the problem, they fix some symptom of the problem. And this happens all the time. You know, I use that because I used to have to train managers. I'm going, what do you think you're doing? You know, your answer is short-sighted and not fixing the problem. And I've seen it over and over and over again where people fix symptoms of the problems and not the problems. This is the problem when you start dealing with symptoms. Start fixing the symptoms and don't get to the problem. You just keep snowballing because you've got the base problem that started everything and then you've got the problems that lead from, 
from all the fixes on the things that didn't need to be fixed. Here Jesus is saying, you know, they're asking him, what's the greatest commandment? So he quotes Deuteronomy 6.5, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the first and great commandment. And literally, this covers, especially in the Ten Commandments, it covers the first four of them anyway. You shall have no other gods. Don't use the name of the Lord your God in vain. No graven images. If you place God first and foremost in, in your strength, mind, and, and body, you don't, have any, you don't have a whole lot of other problems. And this is one of the things I tell people. If you just let God get hold of you and dwell inside you, he'll change who you are because he'll make you more like him. And that's why it's the greatest commandment, that you will love the Lord your God. And if you love God completely with everything you have, you're going to want to do everything else that he says. And it becomes real easy. And this one actually could stand all by itself. Yeah, because if you do this, you're going to love your neighbors. You're going to love your brothers. You're going to not try to defraud them. But then he goes and quotes Leviticus 19, 18. The second is likened to it, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments hang all the law and the prophets. Okay, if I love God with all my heart, I'm not going to do anything that's going to displease him, and I'm going to be like him. If I love my neighbor, I'm not going to kill my neighbor. I'm not going to steal from my neighbor. I'm not going to want what my neighbor has. I'm not going to, I'm not going to violate any of the other commandments that are out there because I love my neighbor. I want what's best for them. And these, both of these are very hard for people that aren't Christians to understand. First, you've got to love God with all your heart. How many times have you heard somebody say, well, I'm just not so sure I want to buy into that, or I don't want to follow, you know, I don't understand this, so I'm not going to follow it. I've heard people all the time in the scriptures, well, I'm just, that's just so hard to understand, I'm not, I don't believe it. I go, well, I don't care if you believe it or not, God said it. And if we love our neighbor, we're going to be excited for everything that's good that happens to them, and try to encourage good things to happen to them. So Jesus makes it real simple. Love God, love your neighbor. And place yourself down below all of that. I take it that uh, all three of these sects were in the same crowd and this all happened on the same day. Sounds like it. We know that the Sadducees did the same day. And we don't know if the Pharisees were the same day or a little later because they took time to really try to put together the, the, the question to trip them up. So there, there may have been the next day. But this is an example. This whole chapter is an example of how people can go against somebody and it draws the, the craziest crowd together. To have the Pharisees, Sadducees, and Herodians together trying to trip up Jesus, they don't like each other. None of these three groups like each other, and yet they're working together. You know, all three of them being in the same crowd together. Yeah, but being in the same crowd, none of them liked Jesus. He's now the common enemy. So they would have been together for that, and we see it even in our day, you know, that when people go against it, sometimes you get the craziest groups of people together that are, have a common enemy, and yet they don't like each other in any way, shape, or form, and don't agree on anything else other than we don't like this. And they join together. And this is that kind of situation. You know, these groups don't like each other. It's amazing, but it is really what I think that what we want to get out of this is this is the type of thing that happens to us all the time. The smart people will make it sound like a really smart, intelligent, hard question, but when you really look at it, you're going, 
Well, that's not really a hard question. But I wonder about the seven brothers and the wife. That's a real stretch, you know. Yeah. And these are the things, but you know, it's just the same though when we deal with the lost world and they throw out some really wild ideas to us. Saw the, the tape on the Sunday School, Evolution vs. God is one you showed where these guys are giving all kinds of stories, all kinds of statements, and the subtitle on that DVD is Prepare to Have Your Faith Destroyed. And you know, when people read that, you give, it's really worked well in giving it to the lost world because they think, okay, we're gonna, we're gonna have somebody show us that Christianity's all wrong. And it really is just to go showing that evolution is nothing but faith. And it really is. There's not one ev uh, scientific evidence for evolution. But they teach it as if it is. They teach it as though there's all kinds of evolution. And you'll go, and if you ask them, give me one example of evolution, species, one species changing into another, they cannot give you one at all. They can't even give you a close one. They'll point out, you know, well, we've got you know, bacteria that uh, mutates and can't be destroyed by, by, uh, by antibiotics. I'm going, well, and people go, well, that's wonderful, but it's, what did it start out? A bacteria, what did it become? A bacteria. Okay, how does that prove evolution? All you did was make a one that's no longer killed by, uh, by whatever it was that killed them before. And these are the examples when they try to show you an example, okay, what was it before? It was this, well, what was it after? It's, it's this, okay. How does that prove evolution? Well, it's, it's a, a change. So, you know, enough of those changes, you know, eventually you'll have a change in species. Okay, okay, well, show me one time where we have a species change, and it, there is no such thing. So there, it's all built on Professor so-and-so said it was, who based his on Professor so-and-so, or Dr. so-and-so, who based his on Dr. so-and-so. Okay, but where's the proof? That's where it's hard to get through to these people, because they're referring to a textbook. That's my cousin's attitude when we ask him about it. Well, who are you? I'm the doctor in, doctor in physics. You know, who are you to, to question? Uh, well, I'm just asking you a straightforward question. You know, where's the science behind it? You just have to keep asking the same question over and over again and make them start thinking. But you're right. And ultimately, as I've said all along, creationism and evolution are both a philosophical position. What side are you going to stand on and why are you going to fall on it? Now, I believe that creation follows science very, very tightly. As a matter of fact, I even absolutely believe it. But, and evolution does not follow science at all. Yet what's taught as science? Evolution, which has no scientific basis whatsoever. And creation is called a faith statement that has no science on it, and yet it fits all the scientific evidence. There's all kinds of proofs that we live in a very young uh, universe. There's uh, all kinds of different proofs that nothing ever changes species. And just the idea of a bunch of chemicals becoming life is ludicrous. It really is. And it really is ludicrous. And the odds of it happening are something that math, most mathematicians would say you're better off playing the lottery than having any chance of life ever coming out of chemicals and winning the lottery four or five times than ever having chemicals come into life. But you know, these are the things that we look at, you know, and we say, you know, you think we have faith. <laughs> you know, you've got a lot of faith. Yeah, but they don't think they have faith. They don't think they have faith. They think they're basing it on facts because some smart guy somewhere said something.
with no proof. At least we know we're based on. Well, we know we in, in actuality, though. Yes, I was. You start out on faith, but at this point, I have not basing my creationism views on faith. I look at the science and say, it fits science. Everything about the Bible fits science. Everything that's taught in the Bible fits science. Now they want to teach that, well, Christians were responsible for teaching a flat earth. Well, no, that actually came long before Christianity. The Bible has always said the world was round. It's a spear hung in, the, hung in space on nothing. That's what Job tells us. Gives us the water cycle, gives us the nitrogen cycle, gives us the fact that everything reproduces after its own kind. It gives us the fact that you know, everything in there just is, fits everything that we know about science. The very fact that you cannot have evolution with the, with the laws of thermodynamics, which are laws, because everything tends to chaos and evolution says everything tends to better. Okay, which of the two laws? This is a law, this is a theory. It's why evolution is still a theory and ever will never be, go beyond a theory because it violates laws of science. The laws of science fit into scripture. God created everything, man sinned, and, and everything has been degrading ever since. And it fits into the laws of science perfectly. And you know, so it's one of these things where, for me, creationism isn't even a, a faith statement anymore. You know, can, I, can it be proved? Not necessarily. First and second law of thermodynamics proves that there is a divine supernatural being. Energy doesn't, is neither created nor destroyed. It just changes its essence. The second law says that we are, we are leading, leaning to entropy or deadness. So if energy has always existed, it's eternal because it can't be created or destroyed outside of a supernatural event, it had to always exist. If it's always existed, the world should be dead, because that's what entropy tells us. Our world is headed toward entropy, that's, that's deadness. It just everything stops. It says nothing is energy is neither created nor destroyed, and it tends to stop. So if it has never been created, means it's eternal. If it's eternal and it goes back forever, the world should be dead right now. And people will go, well, we're in the middle of eternity. We're in the middle of it. No, you can't be in the middle of eternity. If it goes back, it keeps going and going and going and going and going and has always existed, then we should be dead. Uh, and it's, it's when, something they can't get around. The world had to have a beginning. Science tells us that it could not have had a beginning, therefore it has to have a supernatural beginning. Proves that there is some supernatural entity that started it all. Doesn't necessarily mean our God started it all, but it means there has to be a supernatural, and yet science wants to deny any supernatural event, even though science says there has to be one. I know that's technical, but it's, it's, it's for those who understand it, it makes more sense because all of a sudden we go, okay, oh, science proves God, or proves a God. Then it comes down to what God fits the the definition of what science is, and the Bible fits the definition of all the science perfectly. This is why, for me, most of this is no longer faith. When I got saved at age 10, it was all faith. But the more I've studied, the more I've gotten to know, faith is less and less of a key issue on it. It's now, okay, God, you've been so true in every other evidence, I am going to believe what you say because it's no longer faith. 
because you've proven to me that all these other things are true. And so let's try to finish this up. I know we're, we've got just a couple. Uh, verse 41. While the Pharisees were gathered together, Jesus asked them, saying, What think you of Christ? Whose son is he? And they answered him, The son of David. And he said to them, How then does David in spirit call him Lord, saying, The Lord said unto my Lord, Sit you at my right hand and I, until I make your enemies your footstool. If David then called him Lord, how is he his son? And no man was able to answer him, neither dared any man from that day forth to ask him any more questions. All right. So they've been begging him about questions. They've been begging him for questions. And all of a sudden, he turns to them, and he turns the table. And he, and he goes, what do you think of the Christ? Whose son is he? Now, the name Christ is not part of Jesus' name. It's a title, if you don't, don't, aren't aware of that. And it means anointed one. As a matter of fact, Jesus' name wasn't Jesus Christ. It was Jesus the anointed one. When you see the Christ, when he's asking him, you know, tell me about the Christ, that this is the anointed one. It's going to be the Messiah. He's asking them, and this is where they prove that they know something. You know, whose son is he? And they go, they answered immediately, he's the son of David. The, the Christ, the Messiah, has to come from David's line. We know that. They knew that. And this is why Matthew spent an entire first part of his book telling us the line of David, the, the line that the, the Jesus comes through. The Jews are very active in DNA because they've lost all the gene, genealogical records and nobody can prove their lineage at the moment. None of them. Because the records were destroyed when the temple was destroyed in, in 70 AD. The other reason that they need to know the line, line is when they build the temple and start sacrificing, they have to know that you're of the of this line of Aaron. And if you're going to serve in the temple, you have to prove that you're a Levite. So the Jews have been very active in DNA research because they need to be able to prove what tribe you're from. Now, how they're going to do that, I don't know completely. All they can know is that you're of one family. They'll figure something out. Yes, I know they will. They're... So they, event, they immediately answer that he's the son of David. And then Jesus asks them another question. He goes, how then does David in spirit call him Lord? Okay, so how is the, son, how is the father called the, call the son Lord, which is, makes no sense to them and doesn't to the Pharisees either. And he quotes Psalm 110, verse 1. The Lord said unto my Lord, sit you at my right hand till I make your enemies your footstool. If David then called him Lord, how is he the son? You know, so he's asking, he'll go, why would, the, why would the father call the son Lord? Very strong statement on this. It's a trick question. Well, it's not a trick question. It's one that says that, you know, you, you're saying that he's going to be David's son, but how then can David call him Lord, especially when he's not even technically the son, he's a great, you know, a great, 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 great grandson that he's calling Lord, which means there's something other than just that regular relationship involved. And that would take us back to the virgin birth and, and God having a son and David saying, okay, now I recognize this may have come from the, my seed on the woman's side, but it is God's son that I'm dealing with, huh? Well, the, no, not in this particular statement, no. Because this, this, Lord, this statement of Lord was to be placed into the highest position possible, the throne, the right-hand side of God's throne. 
And remember, we've talked about this. When you, when you read the right-hand side, they're talking about the approved side, the, the person who's got approval. Jesus is at the right hand of God. And we still have the term in our, in our term, terminology when somebody says, this is my right-hand man or my right-hand person. If I did, this person wasn't here, I could not do anything. I've approved this person. And, you know, and if you get, use that kind of language, you're saying basically if they speak, I'm speaking. You know, a lot of times that'll happen you know, with, with uh, your subordinates. This is my right-hand person. If, you, if they tell you to do something, it's the same thing as if I've told you to do something. And it comes from this idea. Now, they would be on the left-hand side and everything. Remember that uh, the Zebedee brothers' mom came to them and said, you know, would grant that one of them will sit on your right and one on your, one on your left, you know. And he goes, you don't even know what you're asking. If they're willing to die, then that can happen. But, so the left hand has some power, but uh, on the throne, we're not seeing, on, seeing that. Because we, as the bride of Christ, will be sitting next to him as well. Uh, because we will rule. We will rule in heaven. So it's going to be an interesting world out there. And then the result was, and no man was able to answer him a word, neither dared any man to ask him any more questions. All right, we're getting ready to lead into his, uh, we've got a couple chapters where he's going to do long dissertation lessons. But basically from this point on, they're going to be sitting there, how can we kill him? What can we do to bring him to death? He keeps answering all our questions. He's going to take our power away. And whenever somebody's worried about losing power, the person who is the one that they're worried about needs to start you know, being concerned because even in today's world where you may not have straight out murder, you'll have the assassination of your character. You'll, they'll try to make you look bad. They'll try to do all kinds of things to get you to be removed from that position. And we see it even in Jesus' day. First they tried to trap him with questions. And then they're going to do all kinds of other things, including paying witnesses to, to testify against him. And they're going to see their arguments disagreeing and everything. But this is the way that the world goes even to this day. Even to this day. First you try to trip, trip them up. They don't, they don't know enough. You know, they don't know how to answer these things. Then they'll go after your character and then, you know, if that doesn't work, they'll, they'll do whatever it takes to get you out of the picture if they're that concerned about you. Power never likes to be challenged. And this is where you get into interesting times. If you're an up-and-comer, you can sometimes be pushed back down by the people above you because they're, they don't want you taking their place. Even if it would be good for the company, good for the family, they don't want to see their power position taken away because then who would they be? All right, let's close in prayer. Lord, we just thank you for this day. We thank you for your word. We thank you for your lessons that you teach us that are just so much beyond anything that we could even think of without it. And we just ask you to help us live according to your word. Be in us and change who we are in our heart attitude. In your Jesus' name, amen.